are jumping into Ruth, and I'm excited about this. We're going to go through a deep dive series on Ruth. It's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. Um, who in here has ever read straight through Ruth before, the whole book? Okay, a couple folks. Who here has just heard of the story, like the narrative that's going on there? Okay, less than the people that read the book. That's really scary, actually. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, how about how many people read chapter one? Ooh, good job, good job, good job. Some good stuff in there. It's kind of depressing right out of the gate, right? Seriously, it's a little, little depressing. Um, no, I'm so excited. Uh, they're, they're, it's, a, it's an incredible book. It's very unique um, for a lot of reasons. Um, there are only two books named after women, and they're both in the Old Testament. One is Esther, and the other one is Ruth. Um, the name Ruth means friendship. We're going to um, see that as a theme in this book, is that you could tell the story by the names of the people. And we'll get into more of like what that means, but just know that there's a theme that the names are significant. They're huge. They're a major part of what we're going to look at. Um, it is also the only Old Testament book that's named after somebody who's not Jewish. Pretty interesting, right? There's actually a book in the Bible. There's actually another one in the New Testament. Um, the scholars think that maybe Luke wasn't Jewish, actually, by, by birth, um, that he was a Hellenistic Jew. And, that, and so that book probably is also another book that was uh, named after someone who's not a Jew, which is crazy, right? Because we think about the Old Testament, we think about the, the Israelites are God's chosen people, and here we have a book, one of the most powerful books, um, most powerful stories is actually um, included in here, and she's not even part of the Israelite nation by birth. That's pretty incredible. A um, couple of major themes that are present that we're going to look for and we're going to see over and over and over is, um, number one, is God's providence. God's providence. We think about that a lot. Um, recently, um, just in, in like my own life and, and the circumstances that have transpired in the last year and some of those things, and, and I think about God's providence. What is God's providence? It is when God takes natural events and weaves them together to create a supernatural outcome. So when God takes natural events and weaves them together to create a supernatural outcome. Now you can um, talk about incredible, unbelievable miracles all you want. And that's great and I love it and I do believe God is absolutely still doing miracles today. But almost just as powerful are those moments, especially in my life, you know, when I'm there and I'm, I'm looking back over the years of my life and I see God's providence in all of these significant moments that have led to this moment of surrender and decision. So maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've seen it in somebody else's life. Um, but God's providence is amazing. We're also going to see the story of redemption. Now, what's really cool is that this story talks about redemption. Like, that's a major theme, but it also fits into this major story of God's plan for redemption for all of us. And so as we are looking at this book, I want you to know that what takes place here affects 
our lives right here today. And we're going to see how that works. And it's just a beautiful thing. Um, I heard, um, if you're taking notes, this is kind of cool to write down. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. The old is in the, whoop, the new is in the old contained. And the old is in the new explained. What does that mean? That means that we see incredible pictures of Christ's redemption in all these places in the Old Testament. And it's like when we get to the New Testament, it's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Okay. Um, so that's really cool. Um, it, it, this book is an incredible foreshadowing of the redemption of Jesus. So um, I'm just going to give you a quick summary and tell me what you think this sounds like. A man from Bethlehem brings a Gentile bride to himself. That's the gospel pretty much in a nutshell, right? Like a man from Bethlehem brings a Gentile bride to himself. Um, and that's what we see in this book on a very general basis. Um, but the book opens with a choice. And that's what we're going to see today in the chapter, in, in first chapter, is a choice that's made. And this choice might be the, one of the most profound choices in all of history. In all of history. And so we're going to jump in this together um, at verse 1. You can go there in your Bibles. And it reads, In the days... When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So a couple things to give some context for what's going on here. It says, in the days of the judges. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, right, so they escaped slavery in Egypt, and God brought them through the wilderness, right? Moses is leading them, and then Joshua took them into the promised land, and it was like this military expedition, and God delivered the promised land to them, and they're in the land of Israel. And then it turns into a really, really dark time. It turns into a really, really dark time. It's like, hey, God gave us this thing that he promised us for so long, and now we can just do whatever we want. In fact, it says it in the book of Judges. It says they did whatever they pleased. And so it was a really dark time, a time of rebellion, anarchy. Um, it was a stain on the history of the people of Israel. I'm looking at 2 Chronicles um, 15, 3 through 6, to just give you some context for what things looked like in Israel during the days of the judges. It says, for a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the land were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. So they're in this place where um, they're doing whatever they want, anarchy, rebellion. Um, I heard this quote, and I thought it's so fitting for them. But maybe also we can see this as like a, a, a kind of a precursor to what we're experiencing today, right? And, and, and I think that um, when we're in distress or when we're struggling in life, it's not that we're weary of too much pain and suffering. It's that we're weary of too much pleasure. I think that was definitely true for the Israelites during this time. 
It's during one of the darkest times that God was actually doing one of the brightest things. And we see this here in the book of Ruth, right? So if, if it's coinciding and if the, the things that are, that are uh, portrayed in the book of Judges are really dark and disturbing and uh, it was not a good time for Israel, then we see this book of Ruth and we see this beautiful story of redemption and God doing something that is, is going to impact the globe for millennia over here in this story. And it's like, even though they couldn't see it, even though there was a famine, even though there was, there was struggle, God was doing something huge. And so it's interesting, uh, just to point this out really quick, this will have like uh, uh, importance here in just a minute. But it says that there's a famine in the land, a famine in the land. And uh, does anybody here know the, like what Bethlehem translates as like, what does it mean? It means the house of bread. It means the house of bread. So it's really interesting here that it says that there's a famine in the land and the, the city that we see in question here is actually the house of bread. Just keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to go to verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So it's kind of like the author's giving us these like generalized statements to kind of like get us going here. Um, but it's interesting that they left Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and they went to Moab. And it's interesting because Psalm 60, verse 8, God actually says this about Moab. He says, Moab is my wash pot. Now, if you look at the word, the Hebrew word, it's translated as washpot, but it means more like a trash can, okay? So he's saying that Moab is his trash can. Kind of mean thing to say, right? But they, it's like they leave the house of bread and they go to live in a trash can. I think that's pretty interesting um, symbolism there, um, but we also want to pay attention to the names that are going on here. In this story, it means so much. And we're, we're just going to get an early glimpse of it here. But um, we see this all the time in the Old Testament. So, for instance, if you know the story of Hosea, um, he had a son. And, and Hosea was a prophet. And his son was named Lo-Ami. Do you know what that means? You are not my people. And so... Hosea had a son running around whose name was, you are not my people. I mean, I can't even imagine like running around like, get back here, you are not my people. I mean, but it's also like a blow, right? I mean, God's, God's saying like, you got to name your son this is kind of rough. Anyway, I, I pray for, for this kid. Um, okay, so Elimelech means my God is king. Elimelech means my God is king king. It's like it's his testimony. So he's literally, you know, this is what his name translates to. He's walking around, hey, how you doing? What's your name? He's like, my name is, my God is my king. So it's like his testimony. It's like his testimony. And we're going to learn pretty quickly that he didn't live out his testimony because he left the house of bread in the promised land and he goes to a land that is, is, uh, is not in favor God's not happy with this land over here. And he leaves this place and goes over here. And it's like, if God is really your king, why are you not trusting him to provide where you are, where he's planted you? 
So we'll see that here in just a little bit. Um, Naomi's name means pleasant. It's very nice. Hi, my name is Pleasant. Sounds nice, right? Make a lot of friends here. Um, Malon and Kilion, their names are not very good. Oh, yeah, it's up there. <laughs> so, so Malon's name is Sickly. <laughs> That's what it translates to. He's walking around, hey, I'm Sickly. Um, this other kid, his name is his name means pining, okay, pining, which is kind of whining, right, crying. Um, so his so so um, Elimelech's boys' names were literally sicko and crybaby, right? Sicko and crybaby. Anyway, that stuff is just so interesting to me. All right, so um, verse three. Let's keep rolling. Um, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. The two sons married. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. And after they had lived there for about 10 years, both of her sons then died also. So Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So it's her, so it's Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. You know, think about this. They went from uh, a place of um, famine to go over to Moab. They're looking across. This is across the, the Sea of Galilee, and they would have seen the highlands of Moab, and they would have said, the grass is greener on the other side. Let's go there. We're in the struggle of famine. Let's go there and make a better life for ourselves. They went to Moab seeking a life, and instead they lost their lives. Naomi loses so much just in these few verses. She loses the lives of her family, but it's so much more than that. She loses her namesake. She loses her namesake, and because she loses her namesake, she also loses the inheritance that belongs to Elimelech and now goes to somebody else in his family according to their, their culture and their tradition. So all these things are important to be thinking about, and we're kind of building toward um, the important events here in this first chapter. When Naomi, uh, verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. It's interesting when you look at, um, you know, commentaries and stuff about the book of Ruth, right? They'll give you kind of some summations. And, and they actually say that in the, in the overarching scheme of the story that's here that we see portrayed, they say that, you know, God's name is actually not even mentioned very much at all. And we definitely see that in the first five verses. His, his name isn't mentioned once. And then... Um, all of this tragedy strikes, and all of a sudden, it seems like Ruth is beginning to take on this awareness of her God. In fact, the word that she uses here, the Lord, is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. She's, she's calling upon, she's mentioning this God that she remembers in this covenant that she is with. Verse 7 is actually a beautiful picture of repentance. It says that she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of, of Judah. She left from where she was and she turned around. 
She turned around, and, and really, it's that simple. Like, we talk about repentance. It's a hard thing to do, right? But it's, it's hard, but it's simple, right? We were kind of hitting on that theme a few weeks ago. It's hard, but it's simple. We are, no, no matter how, hard, how far away you've come from Christ, there's nothing preventing us from just turning around. Right, and I think it was maybe Jenna who mentioned this a few weeks ago in her testimony that um, you know even if even if you've gone like fifty, you know, gone really far away from God, the crazy thing is is actually you just have to turn around and He's right there. Like that's that's repentance, turning around and and leaving the place that you're in. Verse eight. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So they have, their husbands have died. She's saying, look, there's no way I'm, you know, I, I thank you for uh, all that you've done for me and the care that you've, you've given the family, but you guys need to go start a new life. You guys need to go start a new life. And um, Naomi, is it's, it's obvious here that she is seeing, okay, they left. She's feeling convicted because they left looking for a life and so many lost their lives. And now she's hearing that God is blessing the nation of Israel again. She wants to go back across the Sea of Galilee and go back over there and see them. She believes that God's, she'll say it here in just a little bit in verse 13, but she says she believes that God's hand is turned against her like she has been cursed, maybe. Maybe that's part of why she's telling Orpah and Ruth to leave, to leave her alone maybe because she's, she's cursed, she's bad news if you're around her. I mean, it's people are dropping dead around her. It's like, you don't want to be near me. God has cursed me like we left what we had we left our promised land and we went to this place. And now God has turned against me. Then she kissed them goodbye. And they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. That's pretty incredible, right? Like they said, um, we want to go back with you to your people. This is in a whole different country basically and they wanted to stay with her which is is insane uh, but Naomi said return home my daughters why would you come with me and I'm going to have am I going to have any more sons who become your husbands return home my daughters I am too old to have another husband even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you remain unmarried for them? No. My daughters, it's more, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She's warning them. She's like, don't go back with me. Number one, God's hand has turned against me. But also she's kind of telling them, look, you need to count the cost of what it means to go with me. Because you see, you got to understand, these were women. And in, in Israel, it's tough for women, right? But on top of that, they're not just women, they're foreign women. They're not Israelites. So it's even harder for them. But they're not just foreign women. 
They're single foreign women. And so Naomi's like saying, look, it's going to be bad where I'm going for you. You don't want to come because it's going to be so hard. Let's see what they do. Verse 14, at this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Okay, this is that decision moment that doesn't make sense. That, that for all intents and purposes probably should have never happened if it wasn't for God's providence working in the lives of these people. This is, this is that theme, right? Israel, things are just terrible. It's, it's a dark time. They are... Um, worshiping other gods at this time and and they're doing all kinds of horrific things and yet in this little place, in this moment, something happens with Ruth. She clung to Naomi. Look, said Naomi, verse 15, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me if I, if, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even Death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So what do we see here? I I think it's incredible. Um, You know, there's so much um, embedded in this word clung. Like, what does that mean? Do you think she physically hung on to Naomi? Maybe. Maybe she literally physically hung on to her. Naomi's kind of like, yo, or maybe, maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was um, a, a kind of a sincere commitment to Naomi, a familial commitment. She said, your people are going to be my people. Um, a spiritual commitment. She said, your God is going to even be my God. A steadfast commitment even unto death. You see, the thing about this moment, this, this moment in history, On the surface, it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. Uh, A a non-Jew deciding to hang out with her mother-in-law after her husband has died and tragedy has happened. And she said, look, I don't have anybody else. I just, I'm going to go with you, right? It seems kind of insignificant. In fact, compare it to some of the other huge things that were happening in the world at this time. Right around this time was the golden age of Greece was kicking off. It was starting right at the same time the Zhou dynasty in China was coming into power. Right around the same time the Mayan dynasty was coming into power. And, and, and yet, so if you take this moment and you compare it to the incredible things that were happening around the globe, it seems insignificant. But we'll learn in, in the upcoming chapters. I don't want to spoil it because it's, it's heavy. But this is one of the most powerful, most decisive, most significant decisions ever made. 
Let's keep going. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Right? She left from this place, so they know her. She's come home. And they said, can this be Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's interesting, right? We're talking about a famine, right? You might think about hunger. You might think about um, uh, thirst. You might think about, you know, an emptiness like in her stomach, right? Feeling that. But she's saying, she's even saying even in this famine, she left and she realized what was really important, right? She said she was full when she left, but she came back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has, has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, the first sentence in chapter 1 gives us a time frame, right? It says it's during the days of the judges. But the author here has actually given us a little more detail on this last sentence in the chapter. It says that they arrived just at the time of the barley harvest was uh, harvest was beginning and uh, we'll see next in the next chapter that this is significant this is huge for the story it's all about god's timing this is the whole theme of providence is that god is working he's using um, things that are taking place to to move and work in the background and and bring things into his purposes so I have just a few things for you guys just to leave you with as we close and then we'll jump into small group. Number one, don't leave the house of bread and go to the trash can. It seems obvious. It seems obvious, but think about the root issue. The root issue was trust. The root issue was trust. A lot of you guys know my story like, I ran from what I knew God's purposes were for my life because of trust, because of pride. And when I came to Bible school and I, I'm, I'm studying God's word and I'm in a class with all these people who are like, hey, you know, God has called us here and we're going to be equipped for God's calling. And then a month went by and like the class lost like five people, you know, they, they dropped out. It's kind of sad. It's like, what happened? Maybe God took them in a different direction. Totally fine. But man, by the end of those four years, there were just a few of us left from that class. And I asked, like, don't, what, what kinds of things do we allow to blur our vision of what God has for our lives to where we start to question? These guys, I was friends with them. Right today, they're like car salesmen or or realtors or um, other things, and 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 all I know is that at some point in time, they must have had the question like, God, am I really gonna make enough money doing this? Am I really gonna be able to provide for my family doing this? And they started doubting, and something led to them walking away from what they thought God was calling them to. Now maybe He wasn't calling them to that, and they they realized that after the fact. That's totally fine. 
it just breaks my heart. I think sometimes we, we, um, we leave the house of bread and we go to the trash can. Because we think it's greener on the other side and we get over there only to realize it's not where God wanted us in the first place. Number two, don't get discouraged just because you can't see God moving. Maybe God is doing something during the dark times of your life that you can't see yet. That you can't see yet. I've had quite a few conversations just in the last couple of months with you guys about things that are difficult and hard And yet, I believe with every fiber of my being that, yes, it's hard. Yes, there are tears. Yes, there are lonely nights, whatever. But God is using that season of your life. And he's doing something over here. You may not see it yet. But there are going to be one day when you look back and you see his hand of providence at every step of the way. Every step of the way. Um, one thing just to, um, just to share, you guys are going to talk about this in small group. Um, we learned about something in Bible school called retribution dogma. It's something that we see a lot in the Old Testament. It's this idea that if you obey God, he'll bless you. If you disobey God, he'll curse you, right? He's retributive. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, Israelite obey, Israel obeyed God and he blessed them and then they disobeyed God and he cursed them and then they obeyed God and he blessed them and then he disobeyed God and he cursed them and, and they, they came up with this name for it. They call it retribution dogma because they say, uh, like what we're seeing here is that the way that God is interacting with his chosen people is retributive. He's, he's giving them what they deserve. If they're good, he gives them what they deserve. If, if they're disobedient, he gives them what they deserve. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, is, is God still operating that way today in the new covenant with Christ? Or is it a covenant of grace? The last one. And I missed this verse earlier, actually. Let me back up really quickly. Zechariah 4, it says in there, do not despise the days of small beginnings. I love that. Do not despise the days of small beginnings. There were um, so many times when I was... uh, after uh, I, I surrendered my life to Christ and I came to Colorado and I was like, I remember the, uh, you know, the almost six-figure salary and I remember the, the five-bedroom house and the cars that I wanted and living on the beach and living the life and then all of a sudden I'm in a studio apartment that I can barely fit myself in and, uh, and, and I kept thinking to myself like, and, and, I, and I'm 28 and I'm going to college with a bunch of like 18-year-olds and I'm thinking to myself, am, am I cut out for this? Is this really what God has for me? Am I too insignificant? Have I passed my time? Don't despise the days of small beginnings. No matter who you are, your background, what you've done. I know so many times I was dealing with um, the question of, of uh, can, can, can I really be used even by God with the things that I've done and the, the things that I've experienced and the, and the people that I've hurt and the the dark blotches on my history. Can I even be used by God? I love, we say this a lot, is you're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago, right? We can change. 
We can change in the power of Christ. He can transform our hearts, thank God. And he's still in the business of redeeming lives. And we're going to see that throughout this story. And I'm excited to jump in this with you. So don't despise the days of small beginnings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Um, I know we've just, just touched the surface today. But God, would you just prepare our hearts? Would you make us thirsty to dive into your word, to hear how you're going to redeem and to hear how you're moving providentially in the lives of these people, God, because that means you're moving in similar ways in our lives, even though we can't see it. So God, as we jump into small group, would you just give us courage and boldness to to, uh, be authentic? Let's not play church. If life is tough outside here, man, let's, let's be okay to share that. Let's call upon our community, our people, our crew, our tribe to, to help us navigate that together. God, we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.